You can tell from the very first credit that says Warner Brothers that something is terribly wrong in Metropolis. Everyone associated with Superman 4 knew that the budget had been cut by Canon, which was an independent film company, went into business with Warners to produce this movie, which was really a comeback for Superman. It was really Superman Returns in that sense. But in the time that we were hired in late 1985, till the movie came out in 1987, Canon's brief attempt to be a company that made high-budget Hollywood movies instead of what it was, a company that made low-budget movies, had fallen apart and they were in free fall as this movie went into pre-production. And even though everyone knew terrible things had been done to this, Superman 4 was done with such good intentions by, led by Chris Reeve and everyone associated with it, that still when you sat and looked at these credits, which were more like graffiti on a black screen than the wonderful and startling for their time credits of the Dick Donner Superman, Superman 1 and 2, it was heartbreaking for everyone involved who had wanted to work so hard to make this a return to the high quality of the first two Supermans. The movie for everyone became a emblem of greed and chaos on the part of people who were in over their heads and an unfortunate and really almost unethical betrayal of Chris Reeve who really single-handedly brought Superman 4 together after Superman 3, which was the Richard Pryor Superman, which really turned into a sort of silly, trivial sideline for the Superman series. And when we got the call from Chris Reeve to do this movie, we were all excited as an attempt to make a high-quality movie. And from the credits on, you will see that this, is, <laughs> this was sadly not the case. When we first conceived of the movie, and by the way, this is Mark Rosenthal, I'm one of the screenwriters of Superman 4. We were still in hot and heavy in the Cold War and in the nuclear arms race. It's sometimes hard today, in 2006, to think back that not that long ago, Russia was our sole enemy and we were thinking about giant atomic weapons and not terrorists in our subways and buses. And so, because the theme of this movie was meant to broach the important question that was inherent in the Superman series way back from the beginning, which is, if Superman is so powerful, why is there so much trouble on Earth? Which is really a reflection of the uh, oldest theological debate about the concept of God, which is if a God is omnipotent and beneficent, meaning all-powerful and all-good, how can there be evil in the world? And I remember as a 10-year-old boy reading the Superman comic books, always asking that question, well, if Superman can do anything and he wants to do good, why doesn't he make the world perfect? And that's a question no one ever wanted to ask, and Chris thought that would be an ultimate theme to return the series. things you can begin to do as you watch this film is that by cutting the budget in pre-production, Canon lost all of the great technicians and special effects people 
who had done the first two Supermans. And this film, Superman 4, is really a wonderful funhouse of bad special effects, wires showing, platforms showing where the actors are actually standing instead of actually looking like they fly. Cheesy flying. But that's why we wanted to open with a scene in space with Superman saving a Soviet spacecraft to foreshadow what the theme would be. We also knew that we wanted to go back to Smallville. One of the most wonderful things that Dick Donner did in the Superman 1 was to capture the very agrarian myth of America through the Superman backstory of his parents in Smallville. And again, sitting with Chris and talking about what the story would be, we thought, well, this would have to take place after his step-parents had died and what would be happening to the farm. And again, back in the 80s, it was a new idea, this concept that farmland was being broken up for this new word which had really just been invented called sprawl. And while it doesn't seem very uh, unusual now to talk about it, back then it was. Here as Chris opens up to find the craft that brought him as a child to Earth, you can see that even the way the green light flows, it just doesn't have any of that special magic. I don't want this to become an exercise in uh, bashing Sidney Fury. He certainly had his hands tied behind his back by the terrible cuts in budget before pre-production. When we first came on the project, there were a lot of names thrown around to direct. Of course, everyone wanted Dick Donner, but that was not going to be. But Sidney Fury came on the project. The ship will grow cold and silent, and you will be finally alone. The power in the module can be used but once. Use it wisely, my son. The glowing green, green uh, orb there put in the pocket. Again, you can almost count the effects falling in budget as it happens. Clark, you out here? Clark Kent? Hi, Mr. Hornsby. Over here. Ah, there you are. Hi, yes, sir. Oh, I'm fine. But we think this is a nice moment that caught so much what Chris did so well, which is to really capture the everyman Midwest quality of Clark Kent. Well, I'm sorry, Mr. Hornsby. I don't want to sell this place to a big developer. Now, anybody who buys it has to want a real farm. I don't think we need another shopping center. <laughs> now, darn it, Clark, why are you so stubborn? T today, nobody wants a farm. Now, you, you blink your eye and they'll all be gone. That's progress. Which was very prophetic because <laughs> we blinked our eyes and they are all going. Oh, what a joker old Jonathan Kent was. You know, I asked him what happened to the baby's crib. And he said, <laughs> oh, little Clark. As you hear the, the score by John Williams, we think that was one of the successes of the films. It's quite lovely in these Smallville scenes. And of course, what Chris did better, I think, than anyone was to play the clumsy Clark Kent. And we, we wanted to put in a, in the very opening reel of the movie, uh, a little moment where we can show again Chris making fun of himself and 
the audience enjoying the fact that they know he's Superman and he seems to be clumsy and awkward. Hey, you never could hit a curveball. <laughs> Mr. Hornsby, that's my final decision, though, about the place. I'm going to hold out for real farmer. You are. And you're just as obstinate as your father was, too. Well, I'm sorry about that, sir, but that's just the way it is. Will you be careful when you get back to Metropolis, Clark? It's a long, long way from where you were born. Yes, sir. I'll never forget that, sir. Bye. And, of course, the scene had to be buttoned with Superman showing what he could really do. Now, one of the other things that happened in this film, and it's almost hard to believe, it's hard to say, is that a film that was cut at 134 minutes was released as 89 minutes. And uh, though I'm a writer, not a mathematician, I believe that's a 45-minute cut, which is incomprehensible. And incomprehensible is the key word, because that's what the film became, incomprehensible. Uh, one of the many scenes, and I will try and talk about them, and many, many scenes that were cut was Clark visiting the graves of the Kents, which uh, was a really lovely moment. One of the things that Superman 4 had to do, we were told by Warner Brothers and by Chris, is convince the original cast to come back, because they were very upset with Superman 3. And, of course, that cast begins with Gene Hackman. Gene Hackman, who is always wonderful in every film he's done, and one of our great actors, is always able to add a comic tone to his dramatic roles and put a kind of edge to his comic roles. And uh, he's a wonderful Lex Luthor. And so we immediately wanted to go to Lex and show where he's been all these years. Again, one of the budget cuts you'll see, this was supposed to be out on one of those swampy highways where it made it plausible that a car would drive by. Uh, they couldn't afford that location, so they went down into a very confined location like this, which doesn't quite make sense why the car's driving. The other big thing that we knew, talking with Chris when we first started, that we had to do was introduce some younger characters. And here is John Cryer as Lenny, Lex Luthor's nephew, which we like to think motivated both Seth Green, who plays the nephew of uh, Dr. Evil in the Austin Powers series. They're pretty similar in tone, and they play the same comic foil. And John Cryer, who's gone on to great success, and obviously is in Two and a Half Men, the hit TV series, played this uh, you know, a little campy you know, for a lot of fun. The Dutch elm disease in my family tree, as we like to say. I do okay or what, Uncle Wax? Lenny, I've always considered you the Dutch elm disease in my family tree. But this time, nephew, you did fine. You gonna skip the country, Uncle Lex? Lenny, you pathetic product of the public school system. Your Uncle Lex has had nothing on his awesome mind since he's been incarcerated except one thing. Destroy, Destroy Superman! Superman. <laughs> Once Gene Hackman came back, the rest of the cast began to fall in place. Uh, Margot Kidder as Lois and Jackie Cooper as Perry White being most important. And of course, you know, the question of what the relationship between Margot and Clark was going to be and Superman came up. But again, we all felt that there had to be a, another younger female lead here just to try and both broaden the audience base and to add a new flavor, new dynamic. And we will see that in a moment. This subway scene, which is cut way down, I believe was shot in the Montreal subway system. It might have been shot in England. I don't quite remember, but was meant to show Clark turning into Superman, chasing through the tunnel with all kinds of turns and just missing it and misses with other trains. And it's become simplified and dumbed down a lot. Again, these were production costs that came in. Dick Donner's first two movies, 
imagined Superman as a great epic romance in the classic sense of the word. Not meaning just a love story, but something which caught the emotion of American culture. And the sequence, again, foretold that the action sequences were going to be sort of just rushed through. You know, the idea being just get them in the can rather than plan them out with a great second unit and great effects. He'll be all right. I think he needs a doctor. Superman! John, one moment. I'd like all the people back there to know that our subway system is still the safest and most reliable means of public transportation. Thank you. And here's the wonderful Jackie Cooper. Where is everybody? Boring. Tedious. At the time, there was a lot of talk about newspapers being in trouble, which became prophetic because newspapers in America are disappearing and are in trouble. No one knew it was going to be from the Internet. We thought it was just going to be from economics. And there's Mark McClure as uh, Jimmy Olsen. The fact is, Mr. White, that I only read the ledger. A ledger which but here is our new introduction. We decided that the new owner of the Daily Planet would have a daughter, Lacey. And the name of the game is making money. And that's Mario Hemingway. Mario became known to the American public as uh, Woody Allen's co-star in Manhattan. And her sister Margot had also been a very well-known actress. Helping me? Helping me what? What I have here are some mock copies of our new layout. It's super, don't you think? The suit's not right here, but obviously we can change that. Excuse me, <clears throat> Mr. Warfield, but the, the world isn't uh, really on the brink. Isn't that headline uh, irresponsible? Maybe, but it'll sell a hell of a lot of newspapers. There's Sam Wanamaker, who is a very famous American stage actor. One of our classic stage actors. Mr. White, may I point out that Daddy holds all of your contracts, which you will have to honor. And again, we <laughs> like to think we were prophetic that Lacey here foreshadowed the kind of New York rich girl. There's not much going on other than being famous and being in the nightlife. But Mario's a very gifted comedian, and again, we thought that the cast did a wonderful job in the film. It's just that it, the film sort of let them down. The rest of you get back to work. I don't think we're being treated fairly. I'm going to speak to Miss Warfield. Me too. Excuse me, Miss Warfield. I think I speak for all of us when I say that we'll do our best to cooperate. Thank you. Um, but a reporter's first allegiance has to be to the truth. The people of this city depend on us, and we can't let them down. Thank you. Is he for real? 100%. And, uh, I like him that way, okay? Oh, you have a thing for him. For Clark? No. <laughs> He's kind of cute. Uh, look. And then we thought the fun part of this plot would be, since the Lois Lane character thinks Clark is sort of a silly buffoon and is in love with Superman, that if Lacey would fall in love with Clark as the girl who's seen and had everyone falling in love with the straight guy from the Midwest, which would allow us then, in a sense, to set up the mathematical problem of how is Clark slash Superman going to appease two different women who like two different sides of his ego. Lois, explain this column of figures. Chief, the president's coming on live. It's hard to remember the time that a phrase like the world is on the brink meant so much to people in the sense of an impending apocalypse if a nuclear war started. And because the summit has failed, 
We have no choice but to strive to be second to none in the nuclear arms race. Therefore, I am announcing the uh, following measures. Now, I know you're all... To get the main plot started, Chris thought that he wanted it generated emotionally by a request to Superman, not from Superman deciding on his own. Of the many scenes that were cut, the character Jeremy was meant to be a, a young boy who asked that inherent question, which I said was part of any mythology which claims to showcase any all-powerful being, whether it's Zeus or Superman, and that is, why doesn't he do something? Many of the scenes involving Jeremy and his school and his classmates were cut. One of Superman's visits to the class, where he turns him down, were cut. ...to the museum, so we can all have the fun of seeing how strong he really is. Here you can see a thousand-pound load easily suspended by his single hair. The museum will be closing soon, so we should hurry a little. Do you know what I can do with a single strand of Superman's hair? You can make it toupee that flies. That hair is a sample of Superman's genetic... Back in the 80s, cloning was a new concept. It seems kind of passe now. It's sort of the stuff of every cable sci-fi show. But we thought it would be fun back then that a place like the Natural History Museum or the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia or the Chicago Museum of Science would have included in their scientific displays a single strand of Superman's hair holding up a 10,000-pound or... I can't say that might be a 100,000-pound ball. And to use it to do this new thing called cloning, which we read about. Now, the question is, how could Lex cut the hair if it was that strong? And I don't have an answer for that. Mariel, who's also quite tall, played nicely against Chris, who I believe was about 6'4". I could be wrong. I've come up with what I think is a brilliant idea. Oh, really? Well, Daddy thinks it's brilliant. Anyway, I want you to write this new series called Metropolis After Hours. Let me show you. For me? Chris had a little bit of Cary Grant in him and always played these romantic comedy moments with a great deal of sort of awkwardness that gives you pleasure because you realize that Superman is there. So we wanted to make Lacey quite aggressive sexually. But again, if you look at the scene, you kind of wish there was a little more feel for how romantic comedy is played by what you don't do more than what you do do. Her trying to climb on his lap or flashing her legs is never quite as sensual as the way if you watch someone in the older films play it. The tension comes from the space between them. Tonight. Yeah, it's a date. A date? Oh. A date? Oh, uh, well, it's just business, actually. Uh... I've got a letter here for Superman care of me. What? I don't understand. Superman gets mail here? Oh, well, it's probably just a picture request I could look after for you, Lois. Clark, I think it's more than just a fan letter. I think you should read it. Dear Superman, forgive me for writing to you, but my teacher is speaking about the president's speech on the arms race. We're all very unhappy about it. And I said we should get Superman to rid the world of nuclear arms because only he could do it. I don't care if everybody thinks I'm a space cadet. Once you've destroyed all the nuclear missiles in the world, they'll see I was right. Superman can make sure we don't blow ourselves up quick and easy. Thanks a lot. I know you'll come through. Your friend Jeremy. Poor kid. Oh, well, I better get back to work. Chris used to have an uh, apartment across from the uh, Museum of Natural History in New York. It's where we first met him. I actually walked by it the other day. It was a melancholy experience. You could see the rooftop garden he had. But he used to, he told us he used to walk through the 
museum and see all the school kids passing through. And once he went to the IMAX there, and he would get recognized, of course. But he was just really incredibly warm, down-to-earth guy. When we walked down Columbus Avenue, he always had time for people. He did not have any of the wall around him that some stars do. In any case, he really felt that incorporating the idea that a, a simple question of a child punctures the wall around Superman and the question of why he won't make the world permanently safe was a good idea. And so we played with that. Yes. Because whole parts of the plot had to be cut out for them when they cut it from 134 minutes to 89, one of the things we're not seeing is Lex Luthor's attempts to create a being who could challenge Superman. Now, our original concept was that because he was using Superman's hair, that this being would have some physical and emotional character relationship to the Superman character. And they went in a different direction, as we'll see. But one of the things that's not in is that they have a failed attempt at making what came to be called Nuclear Man. I believe around here is when it was cut out of the film. May the elders watch over you, my son. Their wisdom is all that is left of a once powerful... And now Superman goes to the Fortress of Solitude. Again, a little bit of a cheesy effect. You must listen to them, kal Listen. I know I'm forbidden to interfere. And yet the Earth is threatened by the same fate as Krypton. The Earth is too primitive. You can flee to new worlds where war is long forgotten. If you teach the Earth to put its fate in any one man, even yourself, you're teaching them to be... I mean, here the faces, really, they really just look like someone standing behind a curtain, something you might see out of the 30s, both in terms of the lighting and presentation. Betrayed! And because the summit has failed, we have no choice but to strive to be second to none in the nuclear arms race. To that end, this administration has pursued and will continue to pursue the most vigorous policy. Therefore... Minute. Love? There you are. What happened? What happened? What do you mean? What happened? Much of the original concepts of the story came through a series of story meetings with Bruce Berman, who was vice president of Warner Brothers then. And we would sit and have coffee up in Chris's office and talk about what could happen. And one of the things we wanted to do was to, since we were going to give Superman through Clark a relationship with Lacey, to make sure we kept up the romantic desires of Lois for Superman. And we thought it would be fun to actually let Clark reveal himself to Lois and then take it away. So in a sense, have our cake and eat it too. The psychological idea that Chris had was that Lois has sublimated the truth about Clark, that she really psychologically knows what's going on. 
and refuses not to challenge Superman on that idea. So we really loved this moment. But again, <laughs> the flying immediately buries the emotion from it. But the idea of Clark just stepping off the balcony and letting Lois drop and then coming back as Superman, we thought should be this incredibly funny and but also sort of romantic and sexual moment for Lois. Here's where we can play the game of can you see the, <laughs> the guide wires. It is unfortunate that the flying really wasn't magical in this movie because it was meant to be a fantasy for Lois that will be taken away in a few moments. the idea that a lot of the aerial shots were shot in, on cloudy days and in the fog. That's when a movie sort of has to grab what it can. There's no light kicking off the bridge, no light coming off of buildings. Everything is done in the quickest kind of second unit way. There's a nice sunny shot of Manhattan. Because the film was shot in England, that's where the original crews were, there's two things you can do. You can look for various signs that have still have English writing on it, English license plates pop up in the film. And sometimes they forget and put New York on the signs instead of Metropolis, which is another thing to look for. You're the only one I can talk to, Lois. See, sometimes I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I'm, I'm always here for you, you know that. You'll do the right thing, no matter what it is. You always have. You want something? What? You don't even know my name. Kal-El. You remember, don't you? I remember everything. Never set one of them above the rest. In fairy tales, sometimes the sleeping heroine is awoken with a kiss. Here, Lois's memory is going to be taken away with a kiss. Time to go. We'll be late. Huh? What am I doing out here freezing my butt up? Oh, you wanted some fresh air. Oh, no, that's okay. I don't want to catch a cold. Here you go. Here we go. kind of weird. I feel like a jet lag or something. Like Jeepers. Does it go crazy? Yeah. How about you? Are you still down? Nope. Things are pretty clear, really. Before we could make the film, before Superman 4 could actually even go to script, we had to go see uh, DC Comics, and the president of it at the time was Jeanette Kahn. We went up to the DC executive lunchroom with Chris and Bruce Berman to meet with her, and they were all worried about what had happened with Superman 3, and they were very protective of the series. When we explained what we wanted to do, they were very enthusiastic about the idea that Chris wanted to bring about confronting this topic, because even their own writers, after a time, I think it's only normal when you continue a mythology, at some point you want to deconstruct the mythology. Timmy, come on. You can't! You can't 
Again, here, this is happening in a suburb of London right now. I think it's Bucks, England, was the town. They had sort of a new town where they shot this. And this was a budget consideration. Director and Chris had begged Cannon, who was Warner's partner here, to let them shoot many of these scenes in New York. Because everyone knows what the United Nations looks like, and no one knows what New York looks like. And they absolutely refused. They were literally pinching pennies at this time. Now, it is impossible to look at the shot and to think United Nations. Uh, it looks like a municipal auditorium, which is exactly what it was. Madam Secretary, I don't represent any kind There's also the cut scene where Superman goes to Jeremy's school to bring him along with him to confront the United Nations. And Jeremy, who's been teased by his other schoolmates, because no one actually believes that Superman would listen to his letter, gets his comeuppance on them. What's he going to say? Something wonderful. Madam Secretary, honorable delegates, ladies and gentlemen, for many years now, I've lived among you as a, a visitor. I've seen the beauty of your many cultures. I felt great joy in your magnificent accomplishments. I've also seen the folly of your wars. As of today, I'm not a visitor anymore because the earth is my home too. We can't live in fear. And I can't stand idly by and watch us stumble into the madness. There's an entire part of the film which is cut out before this moment, which Clark, to his horror, is given the assignment of writing a silly column about New York metropolis nightlife. It's an excuse by Lacey to go out with him on a date. And there's a really wonderful moment where uh, they go to a very exclusive club and they pass a couple from the Midwest who can't get into the club. And Clark, of course, immediately identifies with them and sneaks back out and pretends to buy a, a hot dog from a cart and literally with his breath blows and the next thing I know, they've been swept onto the middle of the dance floor. It's a funny moment. It was actually shot pretty well. Uh, it is not in the film. And there they encounter Lex Luthor's first failed attempt at creating this being that could be equally powerful to Superman. So much of the character setup has already disappeared in the film by the time we get to the spot where Superman is now disarming the Earth. was also shot in a very low-budget way. It was meant to be this enormously complex and funny and fast way of collecting missiles from all over the world. Here we get a few shots of Superman gathering them up in his giant basket, but you can, again, you can almost see the how static it was shot, and uh, it, you can almost tell <laughs> the camera is turned to make it look like he's flying. One of the key things to doing flying or to do someone in the air is not to see the color or light differentiation between their body and the background, which you see almost every time you see Superman in the air, it looks like he's faded away. And that is a, um, you know, a symbol of how uh, cheaply the flying was shot. And again, you imagine Superman swirling hundreds of missiles into the sun could have been a, a great effect. It was uh, very small here. Now, Lex Luthor has a plot. We've now lost a lot of Gene Hackman scenes up to here, which is a shame, because Gene Hackman lights up the screen whenever he's on in his trying to create this 
character to fight Superman, but he's also, at this point, in this film, he's reincarnated himself as a nuclear arms dealer. And his plan is once Superman has disarmed the world, and by the way, you can see Jim Broadbent standing there, who's going on to become quite a well-known film actor, looking topsy-turvy. General Romoff, a lot of people think of you as the mad Russian. His plan now is, of course, that he's going to rearm the world secretly and make a fortune. But a lot of this plot now will begin to crumble and disappear. There are scenes where he goes to sell to the Russians, and he tells them, of course, world peace is a capitalist plot. And then he goes to, there's a scene where he goes to the United States Senate, and he tells them that world peace is a communist plot, which was actually a line that was used in the United States Senate by right-wingers over time. And because the plot is cut out, it's very hard to understand what is going on in the film or why anything is motivated. A lot of the wonderful comedy of Gene's performance is lost there. You know what the sun is? It's nothing more than a huge nuclear bomb. A bomb with so much radiation in it, it could incinerate the average man like... Yes, but Superman is no average man. Aha, right. What is your plan? Boys, old Lex here is uh, kind of a secret recipe, a uh, genetic stew in this dish, if you will. If you'll help me put this on one of your missiles. When we first started talking about the film, one of the things that we had a great deal of discussion about was what is this clone creation of Superman going to look like? And this is something that in most movies is given to a production design staff to come up with ideas. What they ended up with was a... Uh, a guy named Mark Pillow, who sort of looks like a, oh, a character you'd find in an American disco at the time. But we really believe once that was done, that is, once they cast a guy with teased hair, rather than conceiving of the being as an effect, which would have been expensive, because then it meant that every time you saw him in frame, you would have had to have done a visual effect, because he was not just played by an actor. Any tension or any danger or any fear in the movie was doomed. It's just hard to have a guy with teased blonde hair and a funny suit and cape look like a threat to Superman. With this protoplasm I've grown from Superman's hair cells, we'll duplicate creation itself. Down the fabric. Relax, this ain't gonna cover him. Computer inside will weave enough material to maintain the high moral standard. These scenes here were meant to be an homage to the old Frankenstein scenes. And again, they were conceived, if you look at the set, they were conceived to be done in this incredible laboratory as only Lex Luthor could come up with it. And because everything was done so downscale, it's really hard to get any fun out of it. Lex sneaking his way into a missile base. And Gene always had great fun with the costumes and the different predicaments. I really feel that, in a sense, for people who remember the old Phil Silver show, Gene has this ability to play any character within a character in a scene where you both know he's faking it but are enjoying him imitating it. It's the comedy within a comedy. And Gene, who's an incredibly skilled comedian, you always have a lot of fun with him doing it. Launch control. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. There's a weather problem. We got a hold. Hold? 
What's your name, son? Gorham. Gorham, sir. Uh, Gorham, sir. Gorham, sir, do you know your code book? Of course, sir. 27 old sticks, inclement override. Fire on my command. Fire. Yes, sir. Stand by to launch. 10, 9, Again, because we lost so much of the plot here, it's not quite clear what Lex Luthor is doing at this point, or even where Superman comes from. I think at this point they've sort of sacrificed any sense of continuity. And here they use the exact same shot, by the way, that they used before, which is done a lot in a mad scramble to save money. What he's done is he's hidden the nuclear material in the nuclear warhead and thrown it into the sun for the radiation he needed. But look what comes out. It is Nuclear Man. We had wanted Chris to play both roles. We thought that would be the most psychologically interesting and the most fun. Chris had enormous range as an actor. But again, this is Mark Pillow. I believe someone recently tried to locate him and uh, didn't have much luck. Now here we're back to the plot, which is the romance between Lacey and Clark. Remember, she's trying to win him over, but that pretty much has been cut out of the early part of the film, so you don't see any build-up to this. But any scene like this we immediately saw as a uh, moment to let Clark play the 94-pound uh, weakling and to have someone bully him and for him both to show restraint and then get his comeuppance. Right now, the I think the main pleasure of the scene is watching Mariel in tights, which is probably the worth the admission to the movie. Okay. Just push down. Need some help? I mean, the guy who's cast is okay. You kind of wish he was a little more buff in it. There used to be, for uh, younger people who don't remember, ads in comic books, in the Superman comic books, I remember reading in the back, with Charles Atlas and various muscle guys, hugely muscle guys, showing someone at a beach having sand kicked in their face, then going out and working out and coming back and punching them. And this is a uh, homage to those ads that were in the old Superman comic books that we used to read. Jeez, what a jerk. Never realized it before. I guess a lot of people I know are jerks. Maybe you think the same thing about me. That's why you keep avoiding me. Oh, no, I don't think that at all. Just been really busy, that's all. But wait, you know Lois is doing that interview with uh, Superman about his peace mission? Mm -hmm. Well, I was thinking the four of us could get together and go to my hotel suite and have high tea. Now that is something we talked about right from the beginning. When we decided that we wanted to have this new character who was going to fall in love with Clark, we said to ourselves that what we have to do is have a double date. And then if we do that right, it'll really be a wonderful, high comedy, slamming doors farce of a scene. And the entire... Lois romantic side of this film is really pegged on the success of that scene. Lex, you're speaking me out. Now here we cut back to Lex and the initial appearance of 
nuclear man. And it just doesn't work. Nor do we get the little game that he's been play playing with the woman dressed as Marie Antoinette. Gene is just great. He's just charming and funny and arrogant. And relax. He's like, it's beautiful. It's perfect. Welcome home, nuclear man. Your father's happy to see you. But here, instead, we get someone who looks like he belongs in one of the uh, Steve Reeves Hercules movies. The power of the sun has given him internally generated heat. I'm, uh, you are. I'm, what, I'm a genius. I'm incredible. I'm... You are nothing. I am the father now. You have my voice. No, you have my voice. Just remember, I made you. Yeah, you're just an experiment, Freako. <laughs> We never intended these kind of rays to be one of the main powers of Nuclear Man. We thought it was a little bit cheesy. I made you, I can destroy you. Destroy. One of the questions for Superman always is, especially in the Lex scenes, is how to balance comedy with tension and fear, which was the problem why Superman 3 got off on the wrong track. And here is a case clearly that this creature, while you could have fun with it, needed to be something that was a little bit disturbing and, and fearful so that you would genuinely worry about what it was going to do to Superman and or Clark. It's like cold. Of course he is. That's his vulnerability. That's the only way when they cut out the sequence where his first attempt at creating the monster didn't work, that monster gets a crush on Lacey, which then plays through Nuclear Man in the plot. Because that is all cut out, it's hard for an audience to have understood anything of the, that's going to happen later on between Nuclear Man and Lacey. Nobody's perfect. <laughs> Nobody's Perfect, that was our homage to Billy Wilder. You know, I never had a double date before. This is fun. So this is the double date sequence. And we really thought it would be blocked out, which is a phrase you would use in the theater for exits and entrances and movement across the set at a pretty high speed with a lot of close calls and a lot of misses and characters caught in the middle of, you know, a kind of sexual tension and then pulled away as Chris, playing both roles, is trying to act like he's on a double date. I don't think it's completely unsuccessful. I think there's some fun in it. Hi, Lazy. Hi, Clark. Uh, say, can you make a 20? Driver didn't have any change. Yeah, sure. Let me get my purse. Hi, Lois. Hi, Clark. Because Clark's supposed to be from the Midwest and a little bit careful with his money. We could get him out of the scene quickly. So in writing the scene, what we came up with what we felt we needed was a list of excuses for Clark and or Superman to constantly be leaving the room. But they had to be played much quicker and much faster, and they also didn't use a lot of them. Likes you, so notice the dress. My American Express card. Dress. Oh, hey, need dress. 
We also thought it would be great to have Lois coaching Clark how to woo Lacey, to get the irony there of her not realizing he's Superman, and so she's encouraging him to have a romance with someone who's really a rival for her, unintended. How are you? I'm fine. Oh, um, oh, Superman, this is Lacey Warfield. She's the boss's daughter. How do you do? It's a very attractive outfit you're wearing. Uh, I, I think... And of course, because she's told Clark to say that, Superman knows to say that. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, I'll go get Clark. It's really a mathematical construction, writing scenes like this, because you have to constantly be adding up different versions of what adds up to four and then subtracting from it. Some scallops and some duck in this wonderful mushroom sauce with champagne and in case we got hungry afterwards. I, I mean, later. You shouldn't have gone to all that trouble. <laughs> I mean, some of the things there, like in that little moment, you notice there was no reverse close-up on Superman, you know, eye to eye. There's just a way within these scenes that if you go back to, again, Cary Grant movies, you capture and sell those moments by making them more intimate. Any trouble confiscating the missiles? You know, Lois, there always was the possibility that some warped individuals would take advantage of the world's goodwill, but... But certainly Margot was doing the most with it that she can. It was a great coup to get her back into the cast. Oh, my dinner! My dinner! Um, I'll, I'll be right back. And the pace is too slow. You want the director to be moving this along much faster. Well, it's so boring up there with Lois and Superman. Let's go do something wild. Well, gee, they're expecting us at uh, Wedmead Light. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> How can one man be so square and so delicious? <laughs> All right, let's go chit-chat. If I have to face Superman, so do you. Uh, 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 oh, Clark. Uh, uh, stop. You just want some energy. You want to... Uh, and to say, yeah, it's a funny beef. You just kind of move it along and get it a little more just missing in split second. But here's a nice shot where he comes out the other side of Superman. And obviously one of the things we, even in the 80s, we were beginning to confront was the idea that there weren't any phone booths anymore. Perfectly, it's amazing. I'm out here, Lois. Oh. Isn't it beautiful? The city's beautiful. The whole world is beautiful. I've, I've always felt that moments like this should be shared with someone you... someone you care a lot about. Isn't that the doorbell? Yes. You can see the, the long spaces in between those entrance and exits are not, are not where they should be. They should be literally split second. If the sequence were done right, and again, this is not the actor's fault, you would just be missing it. People would be speaking quickly, it would be slam, bang, in, out, next, and you would really just, you'd be holding your breath because they would almost be hitting each other. Well, where's Clark? 
It's so nice to have me back where I belong. Times Square, which today is a cornucopia of giant moving screens, back in the 80s, like it always was, had one big screen there. And when we first decided to give Lex Luthor a home base, we decided, let's make it Metropolis or New York, and let's put him in the Empire State Building. And the question then became, how is he going to reveal himself to Superman? And we were literally walking around Times Square and looked up and said, you know, here we are on Broadway. It would be great to have Lex's face appear on that one screen which hung over everything, singing Hello, Dolly. It's one of those things that just kind of came into our mind. Again, you know, it wasn't sold the right way, but we thought it was a great, funny idea to lure him up. Guess who? It's your old friend, Lex. <laughs> Luther, I suspect if you'd actually planted a bomb, you'd be miles away from here by now. This is my nephew, Lenny. He worships me. <laughs> Dude of steel. Where are you gonna get it? Silly me, thinking I could fool a super guy. You're right. No bomb. It's just that you're so involved in this world peace bit. You don't have time for social calls. I confess. Hey, you look great. Never mind the small talk, Luther. I've got a lot to do. What are you up to? You know you're a workaholic. You're playing a good guy 24 hours a day. Why don't you stop and smell the roses, huh? Get yourself a hobby, a pet, a kitten, a puppy. Well, it's common knowledge that you hate children and animals, Luther. What are you doing back in Metropolis? Because I want to be the first to introduce you to the new kid. One of the things about doing Superman dialogue is to keep his squareness so he never engages in repartee, so when he says it's common knowledge, you don't hate children and animal, he's taking Lex's dialogue and treating it literally, almost as if English is not his first language. It is something that within the Superman character is a, you know, sort of the formula to how he talks. And that scene, which starts out nice, then just comes to a thud with both the entrance of this guy and the guy standing there. How can you believe that he's ever going to be a threat for Superman? He's got teased blonde hair and sort of a hokey black outfit and a silly cape, and he roars a lot. Nice guy who's about to finish last. Destroy Superman. Later. He's a little bit anxious. Can you blame him? Not one of your great thinkers. But I, in all modesty, am. You know, the really touching thing about this plan is you helped me devise it. Your time in prison has twisted your mind into a delusionary state, Luther. No, 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 listen. When I escaped from prison, I had one thing on my mind. The end of Superman. So there I was. The first time in my life that I didn't have a long-range, truly devious criminal scheme. And then I came up with him. With this guy. And you gone. I'm gonna make a fortune rearming the world. You'd risk worldwide nuclear war for your own personal financial gain. Nobody wants war. I just want to keep the threat alive. What we tried to do, and this was something that came about in discussion with Chris, was to, though we were being obviously over the top, but silly, was actually mimic the quite serious discussion about nuclear war at the time that had been going on for 30 years, in which Stanley Kubrick had parodied in Dr. Strangelove. And the idea that Lex Luthor says, I don't, I don't really want nuclear war, I just want to keep the threat going, that that's the logical, political, strategic structure that a lot of people on both sides wanted, which was let's keep a terrible threat going and point our missiles at each other and keep them armed and keep them ready to fire at a moment's notice and that will prevent war. That kind of logic, which still exists today, is something which then if you could get Lex Luthor to say it, 
it would be a way to both parody it and give it a surreal quality because our leaders were actually saying that. From here on in the movie, there's a lot of quote-unquote action. It's hard to take at times. One of the scenes which is cut out is Nuclear Man goes back to Smallville and creates a tornado, which is right out of Wizard of Oz, and starts to destroy it, and a young kid like Dorothy almost gets sucked up into it as her parents hide in a storm shelter, and Superman has to rescue her. But this affront to his background and to who he's from gets Superman angry. That's a long shot to watch. That's held a long time, that shot, to watch that tumble. They're just not very imaginatively conceived. It's a volcano going off, caused by him. the footage that was cut out of the cheaply produced but longer 134 minute film the producers thought maybe they could jumpstart Superman 5 with it but of course that was a good indication of how out of touch with reality they were since the footage wasn't that great to begin with but 45 minutes of film and remember this is not film in raw stock before a film is put together this is 45 minutes after the film is put together into a version that the director once left aside We do enjoy uh, watching Chris Italian in this scene. Little did Nuclear Man know he had bling bling nails way before there was bling bling. incredibly static flying you can almost it seems barely be moving you can see how most of it's in a very straight line which is a lot easier to shoot than flying that swoops and swirls and curves it's very hard to write any kind of special effects movie around New York and not want the Statue of Liberty in it it's a great temptation
passed over the World Trade Towers, actually. It's interesting in the post-9-11 world, I wonder if you would try to do the same things to New York. There's something not so funny about watching monuments in New York be used in this kind of comic book fight. That was the other thing about Chris. Chris really wanted the New York to be showcased in this film. He, of course, lived here in New York and really saw himself in a lot of ways, though he was a movie star, as a working New York stage actor. He really enjoyed theater, had a home up in Williamstown where he acted, but he saw himself as part of the acting community in New York and was very generous and open to other actors as well. We tried to think of some symbol of Superman seeming to be defeated, and we thought if he lost his cape, that that, in a way, almost was a Greek mythological uh, losing of one's shield or one's sword. And when they see the cape, it's a concrete reality to them that Superman was defeated. We bought it cheap. Okay. This time you have both gone too far. You can print your stupid rag without Lois Lane. For Lois, the sight of the cape has to be heartbreaking. Lois, oh, let her go, darling. I mean, she's useless. And while you're at it, fire that Clark Kent. He hasn't been around. He hasn't even telephoned. No, I'm worried about him. Oh, kitten. Didn't we have our little talk about personal involvement with the help? Now that you're the publisher... Daddy? Yes, darling. Stuff it! Lois... Lois, I'm sorry. I promise you I had nothing to do with that. Have you heard from Clark? One of the things that's not set up here because of another scene that was cut out is because of Nuclear Man's genetic generation from Superman that he gets sick from fighting him. <laughs> Over the years, people have written to me and said that was this a uh, comment about AIDS, and it was not, and nor was it on the, anyone's mind when this was written, really. But the scene that was cut out of Superman as Clark being quite sickly is kind of a sobering and shocking scene. But here, uh, Lois comes in again to tender to him. Every Superman story, we felt, has to have the moment where Superman, a clue about Superman makes her think maybe that Clark is him. Because if Superman disappears and Clark goes away, then it's too obvious that they're the same person. So here we had to allow her to come to see Clark being ill 
and with her having that suspicion in her mind, and trying use Clark to get a message to Superman, and, and you have to feel that she's playing it in a way that she's wondering if she's talking to Superman right there. And I, I never expected anything in return. And no matter how few minutes I saw him for, it always made me happy. And I would tell him that I love him. And that I'll always love him. And that whatever happens to the world, I I know that... There's been a whole body of writing on this question of Lois's love for Superman. And obviously this goes back to the original, her original conception in the comic book. One of the things when you write a romance is to try and find an obstacle between the characters. That's what romance is. Romance is the acting out of the obstacle, either the defeat or the successful overcoming of the obstacle between two lovers. Being in love with the most powerful being on the planet is a great obstacle for a girl. It has all this psychological depth to it, the daughter to the father. But this idea that Lois is in love with Superman is an endlessly rich idea. In the most recent incarnations from Smallville on, the audience seems to have lost patience with that obstacle. It's a permanent obstacle. It's unrequited love. It is a love which, you know, cannot be completed because then Superman would have to give up who he is. And writers now have actually for the past years been playing with that and twisting it around. It is something which creates an inherent tension whenever they're on the screen together. Part of the problem with this is that losing the inherent obstacle as a core part of the story, you lose some of the pleasure in it, which is why we tried to build up Nuclear Man's relationship to Lacey. The choices that Superman has to make should always have this romantic consequence as well. If you want a reference for work, forget it! That's a good bit. You know, with my brains and uh, your, frankly, your brawn, uh, the possibilities are absolutely staggering. You know, I, I could be president, emperor, king. Do you see how scared those guys are? And what do you fear? What? Now? With Superman dead and you're on my team? It's like I'm the coach and you're the best power forward ever. What's to fear? All that remains of Krypton's energy is yours. Now here's the scene where it was very hard later on not to make it sound like we were doing some metaphor about AIDS. If our dying planet can save your life, my son. We have not died in vain. We live in a world where plague and disease are always used by people of ill motive as an excuse for some larger intentional issue, the way that some saw Hurricane Katrina as a, a scourge of God, and even 9-11 some saw as punishment. And one of the things that you play with in Superman is that every aspect of it has this mythic overtone. And if Superman takes ill or ages, as I remember in the comic book, they always played with that. There are always these questions about, gee, does God grow? I remember as a kid talking about, gee, can God get sick? Does God grow old? 
By contrast, one of the most fascinating things about the Greek gods always were they were allowed to have these very human characteristics. Superman is endlessly variable. We twist him, we turn him, we play with him, we look at him from different directions. But we always want him in the end to be Superman. That is where the comfort comes from. Give it up, you'll never find it. If you will not tell me, I will hurt people. action sequences, these fights here with the rays coming out of his eyes and out of his hands and you know, a bunch of cars exploding one by one. They just don't have any dynamic thrust and they're done. If you can see, it's you have three men being raised in the air by a wire and then lowered again. It's not the most exciting way to do the action. All right, stop! Stop! That's enough! That's enough! You win. I'll take you to her. His growl is really one of the most demented cues that I've ever seen given to an actor like that. Where is she? Far away from here and safe. Don't go in there. She's not in there. Because we haven't set up why Nuclear Man is interested in her, it's hard to understand how he's tricked into the elevator. Nor is it, I think it's a clear because everything is so chopped up that the reason he's not bursting out of the elevator is because he's cut off from sunlight and he needs sunlight to function. And that being in the dark side of the moon should disable him. comes the sun. Now, of course, one of the, <laughs> the many uh, problems is that the dark side of the moon is always in the dark. And the moon's two faces, light and dark, stay that way permanently because of its rotation. We had also conceived of this creature being much more malleable, changing shape and fluid, plastic as it were, not just in form, but also in scale and in size. We had sketched out a sequence where we wanted him to increase enormously in size. We remembered fondly the times that Superman had to fight creatures that were enormous, and this, the visual of him flying around and moving around 
was something we wanted to play so that each fighting sequence wouldn't seem the same. But there's a great deal of repetition in the choreography of these fight sequences because it's essentially a static character. idea was to make him like the beast from 20,000 Fathoms or uh, Godzilla is a uh, unfortunate choice for a creature that has a human shape. If the bad guys don't go to the trouble of making him human, it seems strange to give him animalistic growls. And here he's pounding him into the moon. We had conceived the last part of the movie and originally the script in a very different way. We wanted, because we had tried, had a more building block plot, what had happened was Lex Luthor had created a scare of a nuclear launch. He had made a fortune, he had created a scare of a nuclear launch, and there was a panic in New York City, and everyone in New York City left. So there was shots of you know people in cars and trains just getting out of the city because... Lex Luthor had convinced them that a nuclear missile was on the way, which was not the truth. And we had the slow pan down to Fifth Avenue near the Metropolitan Museum with this empty New York City. And Lex comes around the corner with a supermarket cart that's filled with all the old masters from the Met. And he was just going on a Fifth Avenue and Madison Avenue shopping spree now that he had emptied the city. And the sequence went on from there, and we thought we'd have a lot of fun with that. The idea of essentially one-man looting of Manhattan we thought would be a fun sequence for Gene to play. It is unfortunate to have such a long sequence that doesn't include Lex when Lex is in the movie, since there's just no bad guy like Lex, or at least as Gene plays him. And he's been off the screen for a long time now, even though it's such a short movie. And it was just an unfortunate choice. Even within this context, there was a whole sequence where Nuclear Man kidnaps Lacey and takes her back and decides he's going to be with her. There's always that sense of romance within these characters that you know was in the Superman comic books, and we thought that that was something we had to keep. And I think changing it over to this not very exciting battle between the two of them was one of many poor choices. <laughs> Are you sure you know what you're doing, Mr. White? Well... Uh... <clears throat> 
Here comes Mr. Warfield. Uh-oh. You'd better have a good explanation. Because now, essentially, the, the action of the movie is almost over, and you don't really have any sense of a plot foiled or anything cleverly stopped. Nor is there any emotional or character consequence to it which you want. This is what makes Superman special, is that the choices that Superman has to make aren't just action choices. Those would be easy for him to make. They're choices that involve people he knows and people that he cares about. And they have to be tied in directly. And they've been completely separated in the film. All right, everyone, back to work. Well, here we have the Warfields losing control of the paper. Well, I'm sorry. You win some, and you lose some. This is what I call a newspaper. Compliments of the Daily Planet. So it's back out of tabloid form into the old New York Times form. Hey, Mr. Kidd, how you doing? No, he's not here yet. Well, it must have been quite some effort for you to drag yourself out of bed this morning. Huh? Well, I'm feeling a lot better. Had a visit from a pretty good nurse. Oh. Well, been... The Cannon Group, which again went into partners with Warner Brothers, which is a mode actually which happens a lot today where studios share the risk on expensive movies but which was part of the problem of the unra- or the unraveling of this film, pretty much dissolved as a company. Okay. Yeah. Oh, dear. Guess I need a tape recorder, huh? Be right back. <laughs> Same old Mr. Kent. They'll never change. I hope not. <laughs> Again, here, not a particularly great entrance to what's supposed to be his speech to the world. Good to see you, again. Good to see you too. Morning, gentlemen. Excuse me. Thank you. Well, once more, we survived the threat of war and found a fragile peace. I thought I could give you all the gift of the freedom from war, but I was wrong. It's not mine to give. We're still a young planet. There are galaxies out there, other civilizations for us to meet, to learn from. What a brilliant future. We, we wanted to echo Michael Rennie's speech in uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still. And we also echoed President Dwight Eisenhower, who said there will be peace when the people of the world want it so much that their leaders will have no choice but to give it to them. The way that I see it. Because when you really look at it, it's just one world. When you look down at the Earth, you just see one world was an homage to the ongoing reaction of American astronauts to seeing the Earth as a blue globe in space. As a sidebar, it'd be interesting to track almost every American astronaut who's going up has had this reaction. I would think that most of these guys are pretty conservative guys, being military guys, but the reaction of seeing the Earth as this blue ball surrounded by clouds with no borders on it, when you look at it from the the space, seems to have touched all of them, and we thought Superman sees that all the time, and that's what he wants to communicate to people. Help him. Every boy can be helped, Superman. I think you're right. Good luck, son. We thought this would be a funny payoff here for John Cryer to go to Boys Town. Mozart's back! The idea of the inmates whistling Mozart back to Lex Luthor, we thought it would be fun. Shut up! <laughs> All right, Marshal, take him away. Thank you kindly, Superman. Come on, Luthor. Just one thing. How did you beat him? High school physics. Luthor is a uh, homage to Ned Beatty, who was in the first two movies. They always called Gene Hackman's character Mr. Luthor. No, Luthor. It's as it always was, on the brink, with good fighting evil. See you in 20. Why he's only getting 20 years, we don't know. But that's what they said. And this is the sad saga of Superman 4. It would be hard to overemphasize the great intentions of the people who gathered together to try and restart the series. But even though it went into eclipse for a while and 
of course, the heartbreak of watching Chris have his accident and then die. The series will continue with Warner Brothers. I think everyone knows that the new Superman looks a lot like Chris, and really his performance as Superman, I think, is one of the iconic achievements in American film, both in its nuances, its sadness, its fun, its physical comedy, its romantic comedy. And I think in some ways, as the series goes on, it will always be a tribute to Chris Reeve as much as it is to the comic book.